0: Alarm! Alarm! Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland is um, in a canoe somewhere um, <laughs> off the off the western Scottish cold. coast, cold, shivering in his funny little commando cap. So um, we've 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 drafted in um, uh, one of our one of our favourite contributors, Waitman um, Wade Bjorn, who um, is in you in Newcastle. I'm in right Newcastle. Now? Yes, he's in Newcastle in his office. I'm um, above the wall. I'm north of the wall. <laughs> Isn't it just south of the wall?
1: <laughs> well, you know what I mean.
0: <laughs> I do, I do. Everything
1: exactly. north of, you know, two miles north of London is
0: in the far <laughs> the far north, so that's where it's I am. I'm northern the- reaches. And behind you is a map of what you're what you've just been working on, right?
1: Yeah. So that's the Stadtplan von Lemberg, a nineteen forty one German map.
0: Of of Lviv. Yeah. So yeah. Just take it. So 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 it's a key to the city as well as as well as basically what we'd think of as a map, right?
1: Yes yeah and it's it's almost like um, because it was what's interesting about it obviously when I was doing this project I came up with I have lots and lots of maps of the city from all different times Yeah. but this is this map is drawn by the Nazis after they've occupied it so it captures sort of what it's they're not interested like, in yeah you know, what they're interested in right and so and it even has some of the German administrative buildings and, and offices that weren't there when you know before they took over um, you right. know things that you would need to know if you were sort of visiting the city and where'd you, you, know, where'd you get where'd you get the map I don't I mean, it's not. I, that's a facsimile. So that's not uh, actually yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. an original. Um, I wouldn't be hanging it on my wall. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, like I, I just went on. I mean, there these maps are out there. Um, there, there's a, there's a guy in the Netherlands. I'm going to ruin his name. It's like Stoin Horison, and he had a massive, interesting map collection of all kinds of maps. And so you can, you know, you look for these things. And there's several. Oh, there's a Polish website that has. It's really interesting, and, and the listeners might think it's interesting too because they they all they have a collection of all kinds, like thousands of maps at various scales, yeah. Russian, British, German, um, but they also have um, on the website basically a map of Europe with a grid system overlaid, and you can literally see what areas of Europe are covered by the maps they have. Oh, um, oh
0: that's interesting.
1: So you can kind of click on it and it pull up, you know whatever maps to include down to city level. Cause some of these yep. maps are like, you know, Warsaw or whatever, yeah. or, or, you know, Germany as well. Cause some of the maps are, are British map, British World War Two maps of, that yeah. they're using to bomb or whatever. So
0: yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. God, how I think maps are. I'm I'm, I'm super excited about maps. Um, so for those who don't know, what you're what you're doing is you're looking at the you're doing a 3D. We've done a 3D recreation, aren't you? Uh, I mean, so that's what we're working on. You, so there's your book, which is for next year, right?
1: Uh, so the book was about very very quickly. The the, the book was about. Um, this concentration camp in Lviv in what is now Ukraine called Yanovska. And I applied for it and was fortunate enough to get um, a grant from the Arts and Humanities Research Council to do a 3D visualization reconstruction model of the wow. camp. With the exception of maybe four or five buildings, um, none of the architecture of the camp remains. The, the, yeah. the site of the camp is still a prison uh, used by the Ukrainians, but, it, but the buildings are not Are not extant. So the question was sort of, can we rebuild this in the digital world um, based off of a variety of historical sources? Um, There was a camp photographer who was allowed to walk around the camp, take pictures, and then he escaped with the pictures. (laughs) Um, And then there was a camp prisoner architect who was designing the buildings or helping design the buildings. He was forced to do this. For the nazis and in his spare time he would draw really good plans and and models and and images of the camp and then he escaped and took those with him too so we have those so it's kind of like i'm working with an architect and Mm -hmm. with a 3d modeler because eventually this is going to go into a platform called unreal engine which is a gaming engine it's not a game we're not making a game but no no no. it's it's it helps you to do the environmental stuff and 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 then there's going to be a public facing sort of portal where you can W- move through the camp and at, at, at different buildings we'll pull up primary sources right. um, and tell stories of things that are happening or or, or those kind of things so wow. anyway that's what i'm right. doing it's really exciting um that's incredible know, it's, it's 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 really interesting just to kind of get because you really have to get down into the weeds you know yeah. so like i i was uh, the architect asked me if i knew what the standard size of a german brick was right in, 1941 and I was like I, I have no idea but I went down this rabbit hole and it turns out there's a guy named Neufert, who was g- obviously German and he came up with a series of standard measurements many of which we use today for example the height from your countertop to your yeah. uh, cupboards you know that, that is actually a lot of these things are actually standardized um, right. and in there he came up with this thing called the optometric brick which is an eighth of a meter um and and that's the brick size and of course the nazis love this because it's it's a very standardized thing and so you know again that's like that's a brick uh and i i also went down a rabbit hole of of light bulbs um which twitter was amazing for because i didn't know what because in 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 unreal engine you can you can tell it what wattage of light you want and then it'll it'll do the physics of the light and i was like well i don't know what and so I pick. I posted a picture of some of the lights on the fence line, and you know there is apparently light bulb Twitter out there. And my God! And light bulb Twitter guy was amazing, and, and he was like, "Yeah, you know, it's probably this kind of bulb, uh, based uh, on and the this is how much light and everything else."
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And it's really interesting. It's an interesting exercise for an historian as well to do this project because, of course, any image, whether it's a map, an aerial photograph, or whatever, is a is a is a snapshot in time. Yeah. Right. It doesn't represent the period 1941 to 1944. No. Nope. Um, you know, so there's this interesting challenge of, you know, how do we represent the fact that we don't know a lot about some of these buildings? Um, yeah. you know, we don't want to give the impression when you're looking at this, at this model that it's, it's accurate completely in the sense of like, this is yeah. exactly what it was like. Yeah. Um, and even, you know, just the, I spent spent a, a day last week trying to find wa- uh, watchtowers Um, on the aerial photograph by looking for the the shadows and 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 comparing it to the survivor who had drawn a map and put where the watchtower you know it's just you get it's a way of getting into your sources i think that we don't always necessarily have the luxury of the time to sort of just really do a deep dive into you you know what was this place
0: like but then also what does that tell us about the people that made it It, it's that idea isn't it that that all the assumptions at work tell you about the people that do a thing you know i mean when you when you when even even if you get into the idea of going to a shop and buying a pint of milk the assumptions that sit on that we've all agreed on what a pint of milk is we're all agreed on what milk is we're all agreed on what money is how that transaction works why it costs more in the shop that's closer to me than the one that's first, you know all the, all those things if you talk about a building the assumptions that a building is packed with in itself i mean you i mean you you could you could vanish completely in the weeds here couldn't you wait a minute. you could yeah could. We could never see you again.
1: You I mean, the you know, just a, yeah. a really interesting examples are are the buildings that were sort of created, right? Because this area mm. used to be a neighborhood of small sort of houses for the railway workers that worked at the right. train station across the across the road. Right. So some of the buildings have been repurposed for, you know, they were stone buildings or whatever. Um, but some of them are purpose-built. So, like, the gate, there's this famous picture of the gate with the commandant on his horse in front, sort of, like, yeah. the stereotype of the SS. Into the sort of two pillars on the side, they built these standing cells that are, like, four feet oh. by four feet where they would cram, you know, 10 or 12 people who they had caught, you know, in the ghetto or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and everybody knew, essentially, that, that you're done for if you go in there. After a certain period of time, they just take them out of the cells and, and shoot them someplace. Yeah. Um, but, again, as you say, you know, Somebody had to design that. You know that that wasn't a building that was existing. Like they created that. Yeah. Um, you know, and and you know the so the the on the inside. If you're going out of the camp through this gate, um, the doors on these standing cells are just sort of open metal bars. Yeah. So so you can see, and so the and, and the prisoners pick up on this and they talk about it because one of the things that's really interesting. And I'll shut up about this camp, but what's really interesting is that you know we're using also written sources to get geography, right? Yeah. So. And also to give us a sense of what what the place meant to people there. And there's lots of survivors who say, look, you, you know, we'd be walking out of the camp going to work or whatever, and you would see these unfortunate people. And that, that was the intent, right? I mean the yeah. intent was yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah. those doors are designed so that the prisoners are demoralized or reminded of like, don't mess around because this is yeah. what happens to you. Every time they go in and out of the camp, they see these people, you know, and it's just awful.
0: So in the so in the in commissioning the the architecture someone's got. You know, they need to be able to see this. We need this is the intent, the purpose. So there's been, there's been, a, and there's been a committee meeting. Surely, where someone's going, no, maybe is that a good idea? I don't know. I mean, even when you say that the guy's on horseback, stereotypical SS. Is he on his horse thinking, I look a bit like a bit of a cliche, or is he thinking this is the this is the right way to do it? Is the photographer arguing with him? You know what I mean? I mean, would you if you go right into what these people are thinking, what they might be thinking, and how how will obviously. We'll never know on, on some level. I mean it's fascinating. Anyway, but we're not here to talk about this, are we? <laughs> yeah, we're not, sorry. <laughs> well no, I think yeah, I think this is very good. We've we've rabbit holed um quite convincingly. Um, I feel like these 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 podcast episodes,
1: having listened to almost all of the, the they don't really count unless we don't talk about the topic for the first ten minutes or so. So So this this works.
0: <laughs> so what we are gonna talk about instead is this extraordinary book that you recommended to me about uh, it's about 18 months ago or a year ago maybe called called the warriors by j glenn gray um which is um what's what's really interesting about what, what's fascinating about this is um a long time ago i was completely obsessed with the uh, this is a tangent again i was completely obsessed with the moon landings right and you know al bean who went on apollo 12 he he retrained as an artist and he became an impressionist painting would paint his experiences of being on the moon and he would grind bits of his badges and costumes into the canvas and all this sort of stuff. And the paintings are amazing. And he always said, the reason he'd done that is he said at some point they were going to send a painter to the moon, but there hadn't been time. And at some point they were going to send an artist or a poet to the moon, but you know, only 12 guys went, it was going to take them some time to get round to this. So he thought what he had to do is retrain as an artist so that there would be art that represented going to the moon. I was reminded of that because Jay Glengray was a philosopher when he joined the US Army, when he was conscripted. And I think, uh, and the fact is, the US Army sent philosophers to war in a way that NASA never got round sending artists to the moon. Do just, you just see my point here? And, and that's what's so brilliant about this book, about the warriors, which is, um, and he's a Hegel guy, he's, the, the, he, you know, he's very much of his time in in terms of his approach to philosophy from the from before and after the war. But he's he sits down and he writes this book in the sixties, doesn't he? When Vietnam's underway to try and digest his experiences of war and where they might sit philosophically in our view of the world. And it is the most amazing, challenging book. And I, and I read it, like I said, when, when, when you first suggested to me and I, and I've gone back to it, obviously uh, for for this chat and it, it's a staggering thing. How did you come across it?
1: I was thinking about this when I was, cause I, I reread it too. Like I, I did a deep dive into reading it again this last week. and in yeah. preparation and uh, so I think I I was exposed to it during my comprehensive exams for my PhD, um, and and for those who don't really understand it, it's, it's for your comprehensive exams at least in the U.S. version, or at least in the U.S. United, uh, University of North Carolina version. You do three fields, which have at least forty fifty books in each one that you have to read, and one of them is sort of your field, so like modern Germany. Yeah. Um, another one is sort of your geographic area, but a different time period. So mine was early right. modern Germany. Right. But then right. my other one was a The other one is sort of one you can choose based on your topic. And since my dissertation was about the German army and the Holocaust, I did a field in what's called the new military history with a guy named Joseph Gladhar, who's an amazing American Civil War historian. And the new military history essentially is is a pushback against sort of the 19th and early 20th century guns and trumpets and who went up one hill and down the other, really looking at it more as sort of. What is the sort of social history of military? Yeah. These kind of things, and this was one of the books that I had to read for it. And like you said, I I think it's just a really it's a really amazing. You had a person like J. G. Inglis. I'm sure there are plenty of him out yes, there. Yes, yeah, yeah. But it's amazing that he took the time, both in in having a, a diary, keeping a diary during the war that he could then rely on, and then also this sort of very deep, and I think quite sensitive reflection. That I think many many people who are veterans just don't, for all kinds of reasons, don't take the time to do. Yep. Well, then he um, and he talks so, about
0: that too in the latter stages of the books. He discusses even that, doesn't he? So he's yeah. So he's it, it, it's um. And he covers just maybe to do his biography very quickly, yeah. And then coming back to what he's written because he's a,
1: he's a super interesting guy. If you look into sort of his him as a human being as well, yeah. So in May 1941, this is this is the sort of part we all know, I guess. He gets his PhD in the mail, which I guess is a thing they did back then. Yeah. Congratulations, you got a PhD <laughs> in philosophy from Columbia, which is no, no mean feat. That's a great university in yeah. the United States. Um, and also, you're drafted into the Army. And so he ends up going into the Army. And what's interesting is that I couldn't find a whole lot about what he did in the Army prior to being this counterintelligence guy. Because yeah, he yeah, says yeah. he was in an armored an armored unit doing something or other, and then at some time in France he gets a battlefield commission to a lieutenant, and he does he does counterintelligence work,
0: and, and inter- interrogates interrogates people and stuff, interrogates he?
1: people, you know, and, and, uh, and uh, yeah, and Nazis and stuff. But then, interestingly, after the war, right, he he gets a Fulbright to Germany, so he goes on a Fulbright scholarship to Germany, where he basically begins thinking about this, but he's also imbibing all these meetings and interactions with Germans in the immediate post-war era, um, as well as German veterans of the war. Yeah, He meets his wife, who yep. I, I didn't realize is German.
0: Yeah, it's Extraordinary. Yeah.
1: Um, in Dresden. <laughs> right. So she's from Dresden and he, and, but they both work. And I think this really speaks to to part of his, his goal in writing this book. Um, cause it's a very much, I think in a lot of ways, an anti-war book. Yeah. Um, but he, he worked at, a, at reestablishing German universities yeah. after, after the war. Um, and he writes – I didn't get a chance to go all the way through them. Um, but you know, being a nerdy academic, I did look them up. He wrote some journal articles about sort of the success of denazification yep. um, and these kinds of things. And then he goes home. Uh, he goes back to the United States and he establishes uh, the philosophy department at Colorado College, which uh, pops up on my map because it's also where Dennis Showalter um, yeah, famous military historian taught for a very long time. So anyway, that's sort of his, you know, and, and it's really interesting to kind of. I took a minute of of sort of. There are these sort of snippets of his personality that come through. Uh, there's an article by this guy about how he, uh, in a very uh, shortly before his death, the, the guy was very nice. Jake Lundgren was very nice in uh, having a letter, a letter correspondence with him, and right. um, you know, all of his colleagues seem to have depict him as exactly the kind of person I imagined him to be, which is this sort of very super, super smart and observant, but understated, quiet
0: sort of guy. The thing that's fascinating about it though is it because it, there's a diary and there's letters in it. So he's he's commenting on on his on the on the on his correspondence and saying where must this idea have come from? What am I trying to say in this letter? What had just happened to me? What had I seen? And I think um one of the one of the big subjects um, in the book is seeing, interestingly, and, and it's sort of it's sort of for me was the in a way the most sort of um, uh, striking um, idea in it because he talks about comradeship and friendship and intensity of experience and, and some some things that in reading about this subject you may have come across before or run into, but the idea of the the eye being lustful. Um, and the lust of the eye is the is the thing that w- when I first read this really leapt out at me. Um, a- and the idea of of war as as spectacle, and I think, I mean, you know, given given that we live right now in an age of of essentially Twitter is half full of things being blown up by one side or the other in different conflicts all over the world. I think he really massively onto something in it. it in that aspect. And, it, you know, he he, he he says, war is a spectacle is something to see ought never to be underestimated. There is in all of us what the Bible calls the lust of the eye, a phrase at once precise and of the widest connotation. It is precise because human beings possess as, as a primitive urge this love of watching. We fear we will miss something worth seeing. For me, this is the bit that, like, I wanted to talk about most because it's so, so, so fascinating. And he talks about how the lust of the eye is sort of um, has been additionally satisfied by the pro- progress of war into the sky. You know that, that that since conflict has changed from you know armies in bright coloured uniforms sort of lining up off- opposite each other and trying to smash each other to pieces, since since on land war has bec- become more functional and utilitarian. Which is also how he talks about the change of war in the twentieth century into becoming the sort of functional material thing which people are edged out. He says that war in the sky offers you the chance to enjoy it basically as a spectator. And I, I mean, you've been, you've been to war. I think is this, is this a thing? Is this a thing you think you can relate to? Or I mean, how do you feel about this stuff?
1: This is something that I I've, I've had sort of an interesting relationship with when I was reading the book, because obviously, you know, it goes without saying, but obviously my year in Iraq from the 4 it was absolutely not World War II. No, <laughs> and no, no. and certainly not his experience, you know, of sort of, yeah. you know, unending combat, you know, and and in fact, in many ways, I I often have this interesting sort of. We can talk about the ache of guilt later, yeah. But sometimes I feel guilty because I it wasn't as sort of violent and awful and me getting shot at all the time, and I didn't have that experience, yeah. yeah. Um, and I sometimes I feel. In a weird way i wish i had but
0: that's stupid yeah yeah but 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 he talks about uh, all wishes these kind of wishes and these kind of feelings so vividly so yeah i mean mean, so
1: a lot of the things that a lot of the things that he observes as sort of um universal qualities if you will right um on on one hand some of them i wasn't in a position to observe so for example when he's talking about, you know, the various kinds of, of soldiers relationships with killing and, you know, the guy who's the sort of, you know, sort of like the soldier killer who just wants to kill everybody, you know, and, and, and in combat, you know, seeks out sort of the enemy. I didn't have that. I, I wasn't in the position, but this, this stuff, um, particularly the the war as spectacle that you've already highlighted. I mean, I think that I think is definitely into something and it's really interesting because like on that same page, Um, just below The War Spectacle, he says, How many men in each generation have been drawn into the twilight of confused and murderous battle to see what it is like? And there is something really, I think, universal about the desire to see things that you cannot see in a normal civilian existence, because in a normal civilian existence, you aren't going around blowing things up. And, I mean, you know, we... When we were in Iraq, um, I threw a grenade in an Iraqi tank for no other reason than to see what would happen. It wasn't, it, it was not, it was just sitting there. It was just, you know, I climbed up on it and I dropped a grenade in it just to see what would happen. And and of course, it was entirely underwhelming because nothing happened. It just blew up inside and, and there was no explosion or anything. It just, you know, and that was probably dumb in a lot of ways. And we did a lot of dumb things like that, but I think it's because you're in an environment that is permissive for doing things and destroying things that obviously is not permissive elsewhere. Um, and what's interesting is I think is, is, and we can take that, which has kind of a value neutral characteristic when it comes to sort of the, 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 viewing of things. But as you, as you move on in the book, he starts talking more about sort of moral and ethical choices but I think there's also an analogy there of a permissive environment where certain normal rules of society don't apply. I mean, he says, you know, talking about, again, talking about this sort of delight in seeing, right? He talks about these enduring appeals of battle, like the delight in destruction. Um, and he says, since aesthetic delight is associated with the beautiful, it may be concluded that war is the natural enemy of the aesthetic. I fear that this is in large part an illusion. And I think, I think that's a really powerful you know he's basically saying there are beautiful things that you can see that are also you know killing people um i'm thinking of like you know tracers at night or you know the the battle of guadalcanal at nighttime where the the destroyers the japanese and american navies are just sort of going after each other and the marines are watching it on the shore you know and seeing things blow up i mean like and I think he struggles with that a little bit,
0: um, you know, of like, how do we, there's that um, thing he, he writes um, after li- leaving Rome yesterday morning, we left Rome and took up the pursuit of the rapidly fleeing Germans. And again, the march was past ruined, blackened villages, destroyed vehicles, dead and mangled corpses of German soldiers. Dead and stinking horses, blown bridges and clouds of dust that blackened our faces and filled our clothes. And this is his diary. Later, I watched a full moon sail through a cloudy sky, saw German bombers fly past and our anti-aircraft burst around them. I felt again the aching beauty of this incomparable land. I remembered everything that I had ever been and was. It was painful and glorious. I mean, one of the things he talks about a lot, doesn't he, is he, is he, is he talks about, like like you said, that that, that there's this per- permission to behave in lots of different ways, kind of all at once. He talks about when they liberated a, a town in France called Vienne, when they get, they get there and the population are alternating between sort of basically an ecstatic or almost orgiastic thrill of, you know, and a woman runs out of the crowd and runs up to him and kisses him full on the mouth and runs off and everyone cheers. And the next minute there's a bloke being chased through the street because he's a, they, they stay as a collaborator and he's obviously going to be killed. By by a lynch mob, and he says that the, the, the extremes and the permission of, of of that situation let people behave kind of in any way they want, and he describes it as 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 you know exhilarating and appalling and all those things. War compresses the greatest opposites into the smallest space and the shortest time. Is what he says. He that but like look, we, he does talk about the spectacle, but then he also like like you said, it becomes much more of a sort of. Um, a, a, a moral moral rumination on on war doesn't it it, it, it comes away because the spec the spectacle of it is a thing that it, it's a thing i could really I, I can relate to the idea of i'd want to know what it's like i mean that's partly why i'm so fascinated by the history of it i mean i know i know i, I know i i don't want to know what it's like but i do want to you know i never want to know but i want to know it's that yes again it's it's, it's the compression of of, of opposites in, even in that desire it's this. It's this. Also, this. This sense
1: of of, um, of voyeurism, and is voyeurism a good thing, a bad thing, or a, a value neutral thing? Right? Because I think yeah. oftentimes we say, "Oh, so and so is a voyeur," and there's sort of the connotation that there's something sort of perverse you know, about it. Yeah. Perverse about it. Um, but you know, I, I and again, of course, obviously, I'm coming to this now in a different place than I was when I was reading it for my comps. But I'm I'm obviously thinking about the Holocaust as well. You know, and. Yeah. There are many, many students who enter into a study of the Holocaust at, at the undergraduate level partially to see. And, and not in, a, not in a, a weird, you know, perverse way, but there's something about this kind of gross inhumanity that, that people want to see. I, I often think, um, you know, sometimes people say, if you could go back to any time in history and be a fly on the wall, you know, what would you choose? And, and part of me is a Holocaust historian says well, I'd like to go, for example, to Yanovska. And see what it was like, right? Yeah. Not out of some weird perverse desire, but you know, you as you as you put it, you know, I want to see what it was like, but also I probably don't want to see what it was like. You know, yeah. there's this kind of, and I think there's something that that for the listeners, I mean, you really should read the book because yeah, the, the the quotes that Al's pulling out are absolutely amazing. But that's how he writes this entire book. Yeah, no, you can find. Like it. You can yeah. find one of these on every page where he is—he is the definition of sort of of ambivalent, you know, in the sense of he's. He, now he does make some points very clear where he's sort of his opinion, but he's he is always sort of very self-reflective and unsure in the sense of whether something is a, is a is a good or a bad thing. You know, he, he's, well, I mean, he's,
0: you know, when he talks about he talks about um, the idea of sacrifice. Um, uh, uh, really 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 interestingly and he says you know all western thought is founded on this repulsive pretense that pain is the proper price of any good thing and yep yes it uh, it, it is isn't it and then you get, and then you get uh, uh, and, and you know it's an idea we've, we we try to shake off and then he talks about you know are we not on uh, uh, are we not right in honoring the fighter's impulse to sacrifice himself for a comrade even though it be done as it so frequently is in an evil cause and then you're you you you're stuck there, aren't you? You you're just you're stuck in the moral conundrums of war because you know when people talk about soldiers fight, fighting bravely, soldiers laying down their lives for their comrades, you know, tons of German soldiers did that, um, and in and in service of what? Or Japanese soldiers? And, and and immediately you're you're sort of trapped on the fly paper of his right of his writing, really, aren't you? You're like, shit. Oh, shit he's he's got me with, with that question
1: yeah i mean i i think absolutely and, and what's interesting and this is something that he does throughout he, he sort of approaches his experiences of the war um in many ways it, kind of the same way that primo levy does his experiences in the holocaust which is from sort of a, a taxonomical perspective yeah. you know he, he sort of says these are the you know these are the people you will meet and if you go to a combat unit or a military unit these are the kinds of people the, the archetypes, if you will, of like yeah. the kinds of people that you will find almost without exception, none of them are sort of 100 percent good or 100 percent bad. You know, if he talks about, you know, um, I think we mentioned this slightly earlier, sort of in the section on killing. Right. Yeah. Um, he talks about the, the person who is kind of like the born killer, yeah. you know, the the body count guy, the guy that goes out, kill as many Germans or, or whatever as he can. And then yeah. keeps track of it, you know, notches on his on his rifle or whatnot. And he says, you know, every unit will have this guy or or yeah. people like him, and it's good because
0: you you need to have that kind of person. Well, he calls him he calls him Homo Furens as well, doesn't he? But ultimately,
1: the, the, he says this this guy will ultimately basically feel empty inside, and when he comes home, will basically be kind of a boring a boring nobody. And he does this with every with talking about basically cowardice and bravery and and in some ways he I, and I think you hit on this earlier he sort of he deconstructs bravery in a certain sense and sort of says that some of the people who appear to be most brave are basically just really selfish egotistical individuals yeah. who think that it can't happen to me
0: yeah and yeah, so yeah.
1: it's not it's not so much bravery in the sense of like I'm risking everything uh, it's more like well it's it's not going to happen to me so I don't. I you know I always said that and I'm not the only person who said this you know that that bravery is not the absence of fear bravery is the ability to function when you're scared yeah right yeah, and, yeah. and I, th- I think he's sort of saying the same thing he's like well yeah you know we see this person as bravery and he often talks about again that there's this archetype of the guy who just won't get killed you know like like the guy you just know will never get killed
0: yeah um, yeah. yeah. He was standing in the middle, standing upright in the middle of a battle, pointing things out. You know, amazing description of the coming into land in um uh on 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 D one of his I can't remember which D day the invasion which of did. France in the yeah, su- exactly. south of France. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's the guy smoking a cigarette, flicking the ashes in the water like he's on the Staten Island ferry. He said, and I felt that, then I felt unreasonably grateful to him. It was clear that he was exposing himself no more or less than I, but his reason was in control that he says, I long to creep through the gear, clasp him around the knees and look up to him wor- worshipfully. But yet the ridiculousness of such an action did not shame me so much as the fancied danger of moving from my spot. As you say, it's all written like this and you can, you can put, pull, pull things out of it in all sorts of fascinating ways. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll take a very quick break and then we'll, we'll come back because I mean, the more I talk about this, the more, the, the more I want to talk about it because we don't, you know, we don't do philosophy on this podcast very often. Um, so we'll we'll take a break and we'll be back in a second. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, where Waitman and I are discussing *The Warriors* um, by J. Glenn Gray, which is the most extraordinary book. You touched on guilt uh, uh, um, as, as a thing he discusses, and that's, I think, something to talk about because he—if you—if you—if you put guilt in as a search in, into the Kindle, there's 86 mentions of guilt. It's a big and it runs. There's a, there's a whole, there's the whole section where he addresses it head-on. It's the it's the most it's the most fascinating thing because after all, with the, his intellect, first of all, he has, he feels he has to define guilt before we get into whatever that whatever that might mean to you or I, and then he pushes into the you know the you know when he talks about the modern mentality to marvel at the absence of guilt in others, uh, 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 and 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 that sort of stuff. So, what, what, what do you think of how he writes about guilt?
1: Again, I, one of the things that that I find most engaging with this book is the way that he doesn't preach. You know, he sort of lays out, and you know he's smart. You know he's super smart because he's always quoting Hegel or Socrates or somebody. But he throws it out there as if, like, I understand that you know that, too, even if you don't. But then explains it so you don't have to ever reveal that you don't know that. He's also, he's so questioning of of himself. It makes it so he's not preaching, right? And he's not saying, this is how things are, and, you know, you should take my word for it. You know, in at, at the beginning of the of the chapter on guilt, you know, he quotes from his own diary where he says the hardest thing is that I feel no guilt. <laughs> so he, you <laughs> know, he's 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 questioning himself before he starts questioning others. Um, yeah. And I think I think that's one of the things that's really really interesting. And this idea of conscience and what it is that that allows soldiers. And it, he's he's dancing around the subject, but he talks about it earlier. In the, in, the, in the section on images of the enemy yeah. about sort of the crimes that Americans committed, particularly yeah. in the Pacific. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. So he doesn't shy away from, from that. And what you have, I think with this discussion of guilt is a long, a sort of long form meditation on human psychology. Yeah. Right. And so he, he says at one point um, in war itself, the most potent quieters of conscience are evidently the presence of others who are doing the same things and the consciousness of acting under the orders of people higher up who will answer for one's deeds. Yeah. You know, and that just sums up, or or in some ways previews, you know, 20 years versus of, of, of social psychology and and the investigation of people in all kinds of situations committing, you know, criminal behavior. You yeah. know, this idea that of the group mentality and what and how that dampens the individual.
0: Sort well, that of quote, responses to that it. quote goes on so long as the soldier thinks of himself as one among many and identifies himself with his unit, army, and nation, his conscience is unlikely to awaken and feel the need to respond. You know, and this is also he, he he's 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 spent before this, he's spent he's talked about you know, um, comradeship and 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 you know, how how units cohere and all that sort of thing, and how comradeship is the loyalty that gets you through and all this sort of stuff. So to, to then, to then go, right. So here's a consequence of that, which is that it is, it is, it allows you to essentially wash your hands of what you've done. It's fascinating. And then he, and then he goes, I must begin with myself as I was. So as you say, he, he says, Fine. Here's here's. My, I'll set up set up my stall. But here's how I felt about it. It's some instant um um with a Gestapo agent, all this sort of stuff, and it ends with him saying, "I hope it will not rest too hard on my conscience." And yet, if it does, uh, if it does not, I shall be disturbed also. So he's again, he's caught in that. I mean, it's almost it's it's almost catch twenty uh, two philosophical positions, isn't it? That that you know, you've got to be mad to want to do this, but you can only get out. You know going to get at it if you're mad sort of thing.
1: Well, and he he also, I mean, what's interesting is sort of the interplay between his his philosophical reflections on what's happening and what he's actually doing. Because mm-hmm. he dances around it in sort of suge- in suggestive ways. Um, but he's kind of involved in torture. Yeah, um, I mean, not necessarily, he doesn't say he personally was, but clearly people he's in around him, it. He's around yeah. it. People in his unit are beating up prisoners. Um, he's also, you know, he mentioned several... Examples. Uh, there's a really interesting example in the earlier in the book where uh, I don't know if you remember this one. Uh, he's talking to um, a free French guy, so a resistance guy oh, who God, has captured yeah. the who has captured this beautiful woman who was a a traitor of some kind. And he's like, "Yeah, she's really she's really pretty." Um, you know, it's, uh, we're going to shoot her. And 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 he's sort of he's he's aghast at this. Like it horrifies him. You know that this person has, as you sort of suggested with the the example in Vienne, you know that. This, these sort of two parts can exist simultaneously
0: yeah
1: um but yet you know he then questions himself in these scenarios where you know he he was in some way adjacent to yeah. torture or whatnot and he didn't really do anything to sort of stop it either right. um right. and i think i think I think some of that's really really interesting and of course I think it's also really interesting to look at when he talks about the germans because Particularly knowing what everyone knows now, right? Because we gave yeah. the introduction, the fact that he had lived in Germany, was married to a German woman um, yeah. before all of this happens. It sort of does give a bit of context when he starts talking about can we hold German soldiers
0: accountable for fighting for the Nazis? Around that is a bit where he says, "I was amazed by how many how, how many American civilian soldiers appeared to put great weight on taking the oath of the soldier," which is because after one of the one of the one of the sort of Explanations about the after Hitler dies and the collapse of the, the of German resistance is that the oath the oath has ended and all this sort of thing. So I think it's very interesting that he talks about Americans and their relationship to the oath, it, it, their oath, in order to grant them that gap between their actions and their responsibility for their actions, and then talks about. In a more legalistic nation like Germany, where the distinction between law and right or between state justice and private morality has never been sharply drawn. So he gets into the, you know, so he's talking about, well, Americans and their oaths. If Americans are allowed to afford themselves this gap with their oath, don't be surprised if Germans do. That's a really fascinating point to bring up because because in so much of the history I've read, it's all been about, well, the Germans have their oath and that's why they're doing what they're doing. How? Why won't they give up in 1945? Well, because they've sworn their oath to the Fuhrer and all this sort of thing. Yeah, but, but there are other oaths in operation as well. <laughs> um, uh, and again, he brings us, he makes us think about both sides and he makes us think about what's asked of everyone in war. Br- brings us back to the idea of bravery and self-sacrifice and all these things all at once. I mean, it- there's two quotes that I sort of, I think deserve to be kind of... Um, Put together,
1: right? So, yeah. On the, on the, on the, uh, he says, to what extent is a German soldier in the last war, i.e., World War II, guilty who kept himself free of personal crimes, but was forced to experience more or less directly atrocities committed by his fellow soldiers and who was not blind to Hitler's mad ambitions? And then a sl- slightly farther down, he goes, and this is one of his more prescriptive statements the answer can only be that no outsider has a moral right. To make such an accusation about either the soldiery or the people as a whole, and when I, when I read that, I was kind of like, "That's a little on point." Like, are you talking to me, Jake Langray? Because I frequently sort of I, I'm I'm more willing to make those kinds of, of, of characterizations, you know. And he's he's questioning that. But then, if we go back slightly earlier, he talks about a German soldier, a, a really re- a remarkable story in its own right that that should be a movie about a guy a German soldier who essentially deserts to the resistance after his unit commits a, a, atrocities in France and and, and and he says conscience this is he's talking about he's talking mm-hmm. about how and how and why soldiers or really anybody is forced to make a choice right and he says conscience has isolated him and its voice is a warning if you do this you will not be at peace with me in the future you can do it but you ought not. You must act as a man and not as an instrument of another's will. And so again, even in the same chapter, there's this, on the one hand, he's saying essentially, well, it's not fair to sort of, he's wrong by the way. He does say that, you know, anybody would have been shot if they disobeyed, which is is not altogether true, but he's saying essentially, we can't judge these people as a group. Um, But then he's also saying, but in these people must've been, some of these people must've been this voice. And again, I think that speaks to something that is human about all sort of atrocities, whether it's genocide or the war crimes or whatever. Which is that ninety nine percent of us, of people that are involved in these kinds of things, whether it's the Holocaust or the war crimes or whatever, are psychologically normal human beings. They're not sociopaths, meaning they don't they don't lack precisely this idea of conscience. He's talking about. They don't lack the ability to empathize and to imagine what's happening to that other person and how the other person must feel. And so if we take that as the starting point, then, then his prescriptions here and his discussions are really, really interesting because it means that most of those people at some level have had that inside them, unless unless they're being acted upon more strongly by some of these other things that he talks about. Which I, th- I think is something that I find really, really compelling out of all of this. Um, and again, it's, it's him not presenting us with the easy answer of, of here's here's what it is, and here's the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. Which gets back to you know, this it, this whole chapter on images of the enemy, um, you know, some of which is, is is relatively obvious. But he's consciously, I think, drawing on the Pacific as an example. I mean, obviously he's experienced World War II and he's been to a concentration camp, he talks about that a little bit, and he's experienced sort of Germans, but really he's talking about the Americans in the Pacific. Um and and what war does and what various views of the enemy do yep. to sort of spur these kinds of of inhuman behavior
0: well, yes, he's very interested in that idea that instead of the enemy, they become my enemies that that, 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 that you you're not fighting member embodiments of undifferentiated undifferentiated evil, which is what 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 you' you're doing. To, to, I mean, the, the the stuff I found really fascinating, really, really interesting, that he was, that, that, where he gets to grips the idea that, you know, that the enemy, while you're trying to kill them, you, you're, they don't, ex- they're essentially a material, they don't exist, and then the minute you capture them, you treat them the way you prefer to be treated yourself, as as a human being. While while you're in combat, they're they're placed in a p- place where they aren't human, and then the and, and the way he talks about what that is uh, and what what are people trying to do by doing that trying to sort of again keep their conscience clear and obviously there's the reciprocity of it That you, you, the hope is that you'll be treated humanely if you're captured sensible rules require according to this code humane treatment of a surrendering enemy who a few minutes before was intent on destroying your life and who probably succeeded in blasting life and limbs from numerous soldiers under, you, under your command such reasoning appears to be crystal clear to a professional mind and he's so he's saying, how could that possibly be? It, 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 it's it's just so so interesting the way he he tackles that because that's one of the that's after all one of the sort of supposedly in the Western way of war that's what that's what we do, isn't it? And and the and yet you can find plenty of examples where that doesn't that isn't happening.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, this is a, this is one of the really interesting portions of the of the book as well because he talks about. In this in this, this section on images of the enemy which we've been sort of talking about yeah. you know, these various various different ways of viewing the, the enemy and, and the one that you sort of highlighted is the professional soldier who sort of he it's all a game essentially yeah you know yeah, it, yeah, that, yeah. That, that you know the the enemy is the opponent um, but it's really all about how can I best you know marshal my pieces on the board and win the game yeah. and then he talks about some other sort of more emotional you know the enemy is like the, the devil or or, or yeah. subhuman etc but he, one of the things that I thought was really interesting <laughs> is precisely this moment that you've talked about where okay the enemy is this evil subhuman inhuman force bent upon the destruction of you know mom dad and apple pie and everything great yeah, yeah yeah um but then all of a sudden they're captured and they're just a guy you know and and he he says you know um what this does to people who have who have the prior sort of mindset you know the enemy could not have changed they must reason so quickly, from a beast to a likable human being. Thus, the conclusion is nearly forced upon them that they have been previously blinded by fear and hatred yeah. Yeah. and the propaganda of their own government. Yeah. Y- you know, Which is a really kind of a, a subversive thing for you know, the greatest generation to say, but, you know, he, he's talking about this cognitive dissonance that you pointed out of, like, all of a sudden, you know, that's a guy who wants a cigarette or that's yeah. a guy who needs to go to the bathroom or whatever, and it's just a person. And and that it breaks down this idea of of sort of um, th- this sort of caricatured, cartoonish vision of the enemy, which then leads to this piece. That I, I'm curious what you think. I'm still trying to sort it out in my head. Yeah. He talks about this idea of purgation, right? This yes. idea that this <laughs> idea that if that if that there's actually a benefit to having that extreme emotional trauma of recognizing your enemy as human. Because at some way, it, it lets you work through that and kind yeah. of remain human yourself. Whereas the people who don't, who just are like the soldier killers or the ones who just live for war or live for or view the enemy as this, you know, completely inhuman thing, they don't, they don't have that opportunity. They're somehow damaged by it as a result. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, he, he t- talks about the incident of, um, in the Pacific where they find a single Japanese soldier don't they? Uh, th- these, these guys find a single Japanese soldier and they basically use him as a live target. Uh, and,
1: and I swear there was a scene in the Pacific, the movie, the, the mini-series Pacific, where they did exactly that. Exactly um, anyway, that was,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he talks about how, how can this, now, a few years later, it appeared to him gr- grisly and cruel enough. At the time, he had no conscience about it, whatever, this guy telling the story. And, that, th- and, then, and then he takes us to, you know, no, no aesthetic reconciliation with one's fate as a warrior was likely because no moral purg- purgation was possible. This this idea of purgation is really really fascinating because it's obviously a thing that because as he said himself I didn't feel bad about a lot of stuff don't feel particularly guilty he's trying to find it for himself and hoping that hoping that others have achieved it too I mean it I mean almost I mean I, you know because because I'm because before we before we started chatting I, I was talking about my um my book about writing about Arnhem I, I, I almost feel reading this is is as essential as reading any of the battle Diaries to make sense of what people are experiencing and and particularly that thing of um because because they they a lot of the veterans there they talk about how because you're not in the line you're parachuted in somewhere suddenly you're in the middle of all this and it's all happening very very quickly and and suddenly you're faced with the enemy rather than coming up hearing the guns getting into position you know o groups and coming forward you know you suddenly you're there in the middle of it all and it sort of uncorks this sort of um, real savagery. Well, it's three hundred and sixty, right? I mean, you're you know you're you're yeah, on all sides. You're you know? literally surrounded, but but it, un- it but it uncorks all the reactions all at once. You've got lots of people running away, you know, and uh, for good reason because <laughs> it's going very badly. And you've got lots of people. All of it happening all at once. And I think this this book is this, this book has that because as you said right at the beginning, you know, this isn't chaps on maps. It isn't arrows. It isn't it isn't they're over here and we're over there and we did gallantly. He he is not interested in that. And I think for for that, I think kind of essential really to, to, um, you know, we're only getting in the head of one man, but we're very fortunate. He's an extremely clever one, (laughs) insightful one, and and a man with a, a a grip on his subject matter that I think is kind of unrivaled. I mean, I've not read anything like this. I've read sort of essays and things that kind of get this way, but I've never got to read anything like this at all. And there's that really brilliant story that he comes back to at the end of the book where he meets a hermit and, and, and in Italy. And I almost wonder whether the hermit's a creation, right, for this book. And the story is he's, he's in Italy and he, he meets some old guy and the old guy says, who are you and what are you doing here? And he tries to explain the second world war to a man who's lived on his own for decades. For decades or whatever who's fighting what and why and how and all that and he says the the further he gets into it you know the less he understands it himself i mean i, I obviously i trust him as an author but that almost feels like he needs a parable to, to to um tell us about how crazy war is in a way
1: not to get too nerdy right but it has kind of the the and echoes of sort of Plato's the cave, right? Yeah. Like, of like, yeah. how do we, how do we get a sense of, how do we understand what the thing is that yeah. we're, we've experienced, which yeah. seems to be very obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, you know, when my daughter asked me to explain something that I think is very obvious, but then once I start trying to actually explain what it is, yeah. it's actually quite complex to break it down into its constituent parts for someone yeah. that isn't familiar with with that thing, yeah. and I think that's that that's kind of what he's doing with the hermit is like, well, yeah. you know, how am I explaining why there are British people fighting yeah, Italians yeah. who are who are also fighting Italians yeah. in Italy? You know, this doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. But yeah, I, yeah, I think yeah. that, as you point out, I think that's an allegory for the whole thing for you know yeah. him yeah. trying to make sense because I and and I think you know one of the questions that one might have when you read this book sort of what is what is he what is he trying to do? Yeah. What's the point of this? Part of it is, you know, this. The, as I said, I think this is very much an anti-war book because it it, yeah. it speaks. It speaks basically to what we would call today sort of psychic or moral injury. Yeah, you know that, that 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 soldiers experience, whether it's you know through the sort of horrors of combat or through you know having to engage with civilians or engage with yeah. you know potentially. You know, criminal activity or their yeah, guilt, etc. The
0: moral degradation and brutalization, and yeah.
1: that's what he's talking about. And he says essentially, and I can't find it. He says it a couple of times, but he says, he says the only the only thing we can do is love more. Um, yeah. Which, if you had read that from probably literally anybody else, you'd be like. Yeah, or what mate. a bu- what a bunch of baloney that is. You yeah. know what a yeah, what a sort of hallmark card with when you read Gray say it, you're kind of like, I get you, I, I get you, man. Like I yeah yeah, yeah. I, I I see what you're doing. You know, like, you're he's basically like the only thing that can that prevent prevent this happening again is to yeah. be the reflections that he's reflecting yeah. in the book, which I think is. I mean, I'm a. I'm a deeply cynical human being and a deep <laughs> sort of sarcastic person. Yeah. Um, and I'll be the first to sort of say, ah, oh, whatever, man, like make love, not war. That's nonsense. Yeah. But you, you understand what he's saying when he says that, you know, he, yeah. he's not, he's, he's, he's it's almost
0: well, he like. Sift, he's, he sifted the options, does not he, for you? He's, 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 he's done the, he's, he's, he's not plump. He's, he's not landed that on you like the Beatles saying all you need is love. He's, he's, He's gone through all the, all the other options and all the, and all the consequences and. Uh, 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 and tangents that war and the experience of war, and the brutalization and the necessities of war. Because he talks about, you know, he says if it's necessary to do this, and and these are questions that are completely alive right now. Uh, after all, you know, like what 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 do you do in order to, to defeat your enemy? I mean, what can you do? What are you allowed to do? What should you do? What and what does that say about who you are and what you mean to yourself and what your society represents and. You know, just all the low end stuff, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 these questions are completely madly alive right now. Um, uh, and this uh, idea that that um, he
1: mentions a couple times, you know, that, that civilians, like the farther you are from the front or the actual sharp end, actually the more bloodthirsty and sort of yeah. intolerant you become about yeah. sort of what you're what you're doing. And, and it's interesting because I, I can't find that. But at one point he says, with regards to kind of the the general criminality or the general yeah. sort of ma- making bad choices in war, that that our generation, meaning the greatest generation, meaning his generation, yeah. is not particularly different than anybody else's, which I think yeah. is, is really interesting, given sort of the the mythology that has developed over the past seventy years about yeah. this this group of people. And one of the things that I wanted to I wanted to, that, that struck me as well just to throw out there is we haven't talked about it a lot because the, the love chapter is kind of covers a lot of ground. <laughs> yeah. But, but he, he talks about, I think it's really, really, really poignant about how comradeship is really not that great. Um, and how, you know, it's much better to have a friend and yes, what, it's the, it's difference, funny what the difference that, is, this. you know, that, that, and, I, and it's so true. And I've, I've seen these other places where, you know, he says essentially that, you know, in the moment, in the war, you're like, ah, oh, you know, my buddies in my unit where we're, no one can ever be as close as we are. Like, the bond that we have is this unshakable, yeah. you know, um, experience, shared experience. No one will understand it except for ourselves. But then, actually, he's like, I never really saw these people again. I never hung out with them. I never really <laughs> yeah. wanted to hang out with them. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think he says – I think it's in this book. He says, and when they do hang out, they basically need to get drunk to kind of re-experience that comradeship. But that really – it's not the same thing as a really solid friendship, which involves yeah. a lot of give and take and yeah. and self and criticism of each other and challenging each other. Yeah. And I thought that was yeah. a really interesting no, thing he's, because. He's,
0: yeah, he's basically says just because it's forged in extremity doesn't give it value necessarily. He it, 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 it says, yes, it's a thing. And the loyalty of it is 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 it, b- b- a lot of the loyalty that, uh, that surrounds comradeship is being generated by an army to get you to do what you want. What they want you to do as well that it's yeah you know it, it's 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 imposed rather than rather than uh, uh natural um we could t- we could talk about this forever we recommend everyone um uh find a copy it's it's easy to get hold of and it's on it's it's on kindle certainly waitman i'm afraid that's all i've got time for
1: <laughs> we, we can't cover the entire we can't cover the entire book you as 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 the as the children's uh reading show in the united states used to say you know and to learn more You'll have to buy the book. There we and are. Like you like know,
0: You will have to uh, read the book. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Um, th- thanks, thanks for coming on. Um, thanks for having me. As always, we should do this again. We should do a little book club thing. We don't, we don't need Jim butting in. Well, and we didn't even. We, this is a P.S.
1: We didn't even mention the bizarreness, which is the fact that Hannah Arendt. Yeah. wrote the forward yeah. <laughs> to, to yeah. this volume, which is just like what, like yeah. and, and his and his his uh, his relationship with uh, Martin Heidegger, who had you know obviously some questionable uh, yeah. Nazi ties as well. But you know, we'll leave that
0: for we'll leave that another for another thing. time. Um, thanks everyone for listening. Um, we recommend the, the Warriors by Jake Lengray. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Wakeman. Uh, thanks everybody. Bye bye.